Welcome to California State of Mind, a new podcast from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. Well, we now know that Democrat Joe Biden is president-elect, even though Donald Trump hasn't conceded. Not only that, but he's alleging voter fraud without any evidence and filing all these legal challenges to try to discredit the voting process in some of these swing states. And a lot of other Republicans, these are elected officials, are also backing him up on this, even though he has no evidence. Whatever happens on the national scene, from the outcome of those legal challenges to this week's Supreme Court review of the Affordable Care Act, we'll see it cascade down to California, too. The big discussion that's already been happening here in California is who will fill Kamala Harris's Senate seat when she's sworn in as VP. People actually started speculating about that like five minutes after she was announced as Joe Biden's pick back in August. And now that she's actually won, the lobbying for that seat is in full swing. What have you heard, Nicole, there in Sacramento? A lot of names being tossed around about who Governor Gavin Newsom will appoint. Uh, Some of these names you may have heard. Attorney General Javier Becerra, he's been a real thorn in the Trump administration with his 100 plus lawsuits. Uh, He's been he's the one that was making the case before the Supreme Court for the Affordable Care Act this week. There's also Secretary of State Alex Padilla. Um, Either of them could be California's first Latino senator. So Governor Newsom will have a lot of pressure over the next few months. He's been open about the fact that people are lobbying him really hard over this seat. One other name out there as a possible successor to Kamala Harris is Congresswoman Barbara Lee, also from Oakland. And she's our guest this week, joining us to talk about the election, its aftermath, and whether she wants to move to the Senate. Barbara Lee represents California's 13th congressional district, which includes Oakland and other East Bay cities. She recently won re-election to that seat, currently has more than 90 percent of the vote. That might be the largest margin I've ever seen in a House race. Congresswoman Lee, congratulations on your re-election to what will be your 13th term, and welcome to California State of Mind. Thank you very much. I think uh, it's important to look at turnout and how many people voted, and uh, it's so important that people understand that their voice and their vote counts. And uh, we really um, worked with the Biden-Harris team to help get out the vote, not only in my district, but um, throughout the country. Congresswoman, you, of course, endorsed Kamala Harris uh, early on in the presidential race in 2019 when she was running for president. And you and the vice president-elect, of course, share very strong ties to Oakland and the East Bay. I would just love for you to share with us your first thoughts when you finally realized that she was going to be the next vice president of the United States. Of course, like uh, I think most people in Oakland and in Berkeley, we were excited But we know Kamala, and we know how, as vice president, she's going to move the country forward uh, to attack and crush this virus, to create economic opportunities and address the economic and health impacts of this uh, terrible pandemic, and also uh, to bring the country together. So while I was personally excited, I was so happy for the country and uh, happy for our state. And I think more... uh, people now realize uh, why I endorsed her for president, because she's fully prepared. She's uh, a person of integrity. She's a fighter and she's a trailblazer. 
Well, here in California, we, of course, love to speculate. And when members of the media write their shortlists for individuals for who Governor Gavin Newsom might nominate to replace Senator Harris, you are often on those lists. And in fact, a recent survey by the University of Southern California's Schwarzenegger Institute had you leading the field of possible replacements. So I just have to ask, would you want to be a senator? Certainly, it would be an honor, but I think that the governor knows exactly who he thinks will best represent California and best represent the uh, agenda which uh, Senator Harris uh, has put forth in the Senate. Have you heard from the governor's office yet? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Well, Congresswoman, as we are speaking today, President Donald Trump has yet to concede the election. Many of your GOP colleagues in Washington are supporting the president as he refuses to recognize President-elect Joe Biden. And there are some are concerned that the president is maneuvering in a way that could be a threat to this country's legacy of an amicable transition of power. Where are you on these developments and what is your top concern going into this transition of power over the next 70 days? This is nothing that we did not expect. I mean, I've always said that he is uh, uh, the greatest national security threat, even before this moment, to to our country. When you see his moves uh, in the last four years, his agenda, how what he has done in terms of dismantling the government, in terms of consolidating power within the White House, in terms of... Uh, trying to uh, ignore the three branches of government in our democracy. Clearly, he is acting as strongmen act and as dictators act, and it's outrageous. It's uh, un-American. And the Republicans, of all people, uh, if they consider themselves patriots and if they consider themselves upholding the Constitution and this democratic form of government, then they should weigh in and say enough is enough and engage in this peaceful transition. Well, there's a lot of discussion about stalemate in Washington. If Democrats do not secure a majority in the U.S. Senate, are there any policy areas or legislative issues where Democrats and Republicans can find common ground in the next year? Mitch McConnell uh, is going to have to uh, work with uh, President Biden and Vice President uh, Harris to bring forth a plan. And I hope I wish we could do this uh, in November to attack this virus. When you look at how many people are dying because of the lack of leadership, the disproportionate rates of deaths and the virus transmission with communities of color, this is a national emergency. And and so Mitch McConnell's constituents are dying also. His constituents are suffering from the loss of jobs. I think that President Biden-elect will be able to um, help work and bring the Senate on board to make sure that some of the big issues that affect even his constituents are addressed. Exit polls have shown that President Trump actually picked up more support from Latino men, black men this election. Should the Democrats be worried about reaching what's been historically their base? I've always said that uh, we have got to make sure that not only during election time, but in between elections, we we engage with different constituencies and recognize that we have to disaggregate the uh, numbers in terms of the Latinx community. We have to know uh, the differences between African-Americans' views. We're not monolithic, but for the most part, the majority of African-Americans and African-American men are Democrats. And we need to uh, understand that civic engagement in between elections is extremely important. 
Well, Joe Biden has named controlling the coronavirus pandemic as one of his top priorities when he takes office. What do you think he should tackle first? Well, I'm glad that he's tackling it now by putting forth a a panel, a a task force of experts. And I'm, I'm so pleased that he's going public with some of their recommendations and the information already. Uh, And so they will determine, the health experts, the scientists will determine what his agenda should be. And again, I'm so pleased that he's doing that now because uh, Donald Trump is not. It has been nearly eight months now since Americans received any pandemic financial relief from the federal government. Although Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been in negotiations over a second aid package for a long time with various Republican officials, Do you see any movement on a new stimulus package by the end of the year, or will people have to wait another two-plus months for assistance? We're working day and night to try to get a a bill that Mitch McConnell will embrace. Having said that, we have passed the HEROES Act twice. We have uh, listened to what Republicans wanted. We've negotiated. Uh, We started with over $3 trillion. We ended up with another package which was a bit over $2 trillion. And so... Um, This is something that um, we we have to do. We have to do this quickly. And so we have to understand that this should be bipartisan. And and we've got to attack the virus as well as the economic impacts together. People deserve that additional $600 a week for their unemployment compensation. And And it should be retroactive. Congresswoman, part of your legacy is that in September 2001, you were the lone vote in both the Senate and House to oppose authorizing blanket use of force by the military against whoever attacked us on 9-11. Next year will mark two decades since that vote. And God forbid if we were to hold a similar vote today in 2020, I'm just hoping you might explore this question. Would you again be the lone congressional voice of opposition? I don't think so. And I've, for the 20 years, tried to repeal that authorization. It was a blank check. It was 60 words. And it was overly broad. And it set the stage for a perpetual war. Remember, the Iraq resolution is still um, on the books. And we built bipartisan support to repeal it. It passed once again, both of them, once again this year. And there they sit on Mitch McConnell's desk in the National Defense Authorization Act. So the public has come around. The public understands that that if we're going to go to war, if we're going to put our young men and women at harm's way, if we're going to ask the public to use taxpayer dollars to go to war, then Congress should do their job. You know, that resolution has been used based on the Congressional Research Service Uh, in an unclassified report, and this was about a year ago, uh, 41 times at least. And in, I believe it's 18 countries. The data is there, the the information about the last 20 years is very clear in terms of the, uh, the facts. And it has been used in Yemen, Somalia. It's been used for domestic spying in this country. It's just been used in ways that those who voted for it, I don't think anticipated. I anticipated it because it was so overly broad. And I knew then it was just giving up congressional uh, authorities on their constitutional responsibility. And yes, Congress has been missing in action. But I believe today that uh, if that resolution came forward, after 20 years and after the public weighing in with their members and after my 
explaining and working with members that they would um, join me in voting. No, only 25% of members here today in Congress were here in 2001. And so many uh, did not even have the chance to vote yes or no on it. Well, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. The thing that sticks out to me after hearing that is it's easy to forget that we've been in this war for 20 years. It's interesting to hear her talk about the origin of that and her optimism that she wouldn't be the lone vote anymore. And I also think it speaks to that time, right, because that vote happened shortly after 9-11. There were a lot of emotions running high. People wanted to find out what happened and who did it and get out there. And so I think there was probably just a ton of pressure on Congress to do something. And she really, you know, stood up and and stood out on that and now believes that because of everything that's happened over the last 20 years, that she wouldn't be the only one. And her point that it's, you know, there's only a quarter of people in Congress that were there back then. And so I think that's also part of that movement that we've seen in more recent years. We also talk about gridlock in Congress a lot. Like, I wonder if 20 years later, this is one of those issues where there could be common ground. Right. Or something like she said she's been trying to undo if she would have support for that now more than ever. Well, again, she might be the person to fill Kamala Harris's Senate seat. And so she might have if that happens, she might have a little more influence over something like this. But we don't really know the timeline for when that appointment to the Senate might happen. Uh, I know Newsom has said that. Um, he's kind of basing it on Kamala Harris's timeline. So it might be something that waits until early next year. Well, and given how many Californians might be tapped for the Biden-Harris administration, he could also be waiting to see which of these folks may go to other posts and hopefully make the decision a little bit easier. But it's anybody's guess who he might choose at this point. That's a good point with cabinet positions. I'm not going to speculate who he might choose, but I think that some of the things he has to consider for someone who's going to replace Senator Harris is diversity, gender. You know, California has, as you mentioned, Nicole, earlier, the potential to send the first Latino from California to the Senate. You know, you have uh, African-American women who could take that seat. Kamala leaving leaves no black women in the Senate. So I think there are some other factors that he's also going to have to consider in representing all of California. Yeah, again, it's a lot of pressure on him. I can't imagine he's like thrilled to be in this sort of kingmaker position right now and in a position where he might slight a lot of people. (laughs) We'll leave you with that thought and we'll be right back. Welcome back to California State of Mind. I'm Nicole Nixon. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. At least one of the Trump legal challenges is still ongoing, despite his loss. The Supreme Court this week heard the case against the Affordable Care Act. This case is called Texas v. California. Elizabeth, why are these two states taking this fight over the ACA all the way up to the Supreme Court? It started in 2017. That's when the Trump administration canceled the individual mandate, which required everyone to have insurance or pay a penalty. And that was part of the act so that everybody would have to be a part of this program, and that helps pay for it. 
Okay, and now Texas is questioning the legality of the entire Affordable Care Act based on that one piece of it that's now zeroed out, right? Right. And it's not the first time the ACA, better known as Obamacare, has been challenged. But with Trump's recent Supreme Court appointees, supporters of the plan are really worried. Well, California is taking up the mantle of defending this law. What's at stake for the state here? California Attorney General Bassetta is leading the charge for California and other states. A lot is at stake for California. Billions of dollars, millions of people who gain coverage through the plan. But to give you a better picture, I invited Emily Bazar and Angela Hart of Kaiser Health News and Sammy Kaola of Cap Radio to break it down. Angela, let's start with your thoughts about this. What is the status of the case right now? Right now, as it remains up in the air, the future of Obamacare. But I think one thing we did here yesterday and legal experts have weighed in on this is an overarching confidence that the some of the core components of the Affordable Care Act will be upheld. However, I think based on comments from a few of the conservative-leaning justices, the mandate to have coverage or pay a tax penalty is really thrown into question. Well, and that's what the case, the foundation of the case is about, right? It's based on that. That's right. Um, But I think um, heading into yesterday before the hearing started, there was really a palpable fear that um, the lower court hearing could have been upheld. The lower court had said that because the Congress in 2017 zeroed out the penalty of the mandate, the entire law itself was on shaky ground and could could still be struck down. Now, I think what we heard yesterday, there was a little bit more kind of feeling that some of those fears might be a little bit overblown. But I will say there is still a a giant amount of uncertainty. We're dealing with a Supreme Court, a conservative-leaning majority Supreme Court, um, and we haven't seen yet what uh, they are inclined to do. So I think it's a major test for the new justices. Bringing it home, though, what does California stand to lose if the court cancels the Affordable Care Act? California stands to lose $27 billion in federal funding. And that really calls into question the state's entire health care agenda. It calls into question this push to achieve universal health coverage. It calls into question this push to cover undocumented immigrants and uh, Medi-Cal. It really calls into question the state's progress that it has achieved um, since the Affordable Care Act implementation in 2014. Sammy, Hasn't California gone above and beyond the requirements of the ACA, like Angela just mentioned, specifically in expanding Medi-Cal? Absolutely. There has been a major push in California to get people enrolled, uh, both in Medi-Cal and in Covered California. But with our Medicaid eligibility requirements in particular, we have really tried to get everybody to become eligible. And so a lot of that for us has had to do with the undocumented population in California. And so we, uh, back in 2016, were, I believe, the first state to expand Medi-Cal eligibility to undocumented children ages 0 to 18. Um, And then more recently, we expanded that to include young adults up to age 26, regardless of immigration status. And just this past uh, budget session, we saw a push to expand Medi-Cal to undocumented seniors in California. That ended up being tabled largely because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but I expect that that fight will continue next year. It's been a a major priority for California health advocates to get 
everyone enroll to really continue to cut down our uninsured rates. And, you know, even early in the ACA, uh, even with those barriers for people who may not have full citizenship, we did see huge drops, especially in communities of color. The California Pan-Ethnic Health Network reports that between 2013 and 2015, the ACA cut uninsurance rates by more than half for African-American and Asian-American Californians. And so that is a group that has uh, historically struggled to find insurance and has really gained under the ACA. And uh, you know that's going to be particularly important during this pandemic as well, because we know that communities of color are more affected by COVID-19. They're uh, contracting it at higher rates and they're dying at higher rates. So, you know, if they lose their health coverage, that's going to be a major blow. Emily, you've been covering this for a long time, going back to the hard-fought passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. And even back then, as soon as the law was signed, lawsuits were filed. What were some of the challenges in passing the law and keeping it in place even back then? Gosh, it's interesting. Uh, The uh, challenges just came fast and furious. And it really uh, became clear to me that even, you know, obviously this is extended till today. And many pieces of the Affordable Care Act have been whittled away over the years. You know, in the beginning, for instance, one of the biggest things for California that uh, Sammy and Angela just referred to is the Medicaid expansion. Out of the approximately 5 million people who have gained coverage through the Affordable Care Act in California, it's been through the Medicaid expansion. That's the big thing. And uh, one of the first lawsuits uh, against the... um, against Obamacare was over the Medicaid expansion. And the result was that uh, the justices determined that it was to be optional. States didn't have to do it, but uh, the states that wanted to and uh, put that effort in could. And, and of course, California was, was a leader in that. And uh, I think more than 30 states have expanded Medicaid, uh, but that leaves 20 where people... Um, who are very vulnerable don't have that opportunity. Um, uh, so that was one of the big things. But, you know, for instance, there was something in the ACA that would have helped people obtain long-term care insurance. We've been hearing a lot about long-term care in the in the COVID crisis and um, how expensive it is. And, uh, and that went away. Uh, the co-ops, um, <laughs> there were supposed to be these great co-ops that were going to allow people to get covered. Those have been um, fought at every turn and only four of them remain. And, and, you know, there was this big tax that was supposed to tax these really rich, um, healthcare plans, um, to, to earn money or, or raise money for, for Obamacare. Uh, it was called the Cadillac tax and that was killed. And, and of course we've got, um, you know, the, the latest, there were more, but we've got the latest challenge. So this is a law that has just been assailed from the beginning. And it's kind of amazing if you think of it that way, that it's still providing coverage for so many people at this point. So does California have a backup plan just in case the court sides against the ACA or things change in the future? The state has passed a couple of laws this year um, to uh, prevent insurers from imposing annual or lifetime limits on coverage and um, requiring that they cover preventive care. Um, So I think between the state-based individual mandate and those protections, there's a, a small amount of protection for healthcare consumers in California, but by and large, no, the state does not have a backup plan. Um, I have confirmed that with um, the Newsom administration, with Covered California, and um, and they're not shy about it. Um, I talked to um, Pro Tem Atkins, the leader of the state Senate, 
And she said when Peter Lee of Covered California said it's not feasible for California to have a backup plan, she said Peter Lee is right. Um, the state cannot possibly make up $27 billion of federal funds that come every year. You know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but look where we are in this moment in time with a totally unanticipated, devastating pandemic and, and uh, that has put additional pressure on, our, on the state budget. And this year... Medicaid um, just kind of got by with by the skin of its teeth um, in terms of uh, avoiding cuts. But, you know, this pandemic continues, the hit on the economy continues. So you would be would be impossible for California to make up this kind of money. And, And I think the Newsom administration told her it would be catastrophic for the state. Sammy, what have you heard on this front? I think it's also important to think about affordability here. You know, as California pushed to make more people eligible and to get people signed up, especially in the covered California market, they needed a way to make coverage affordable to people. For a long time, the premiums on covered California were outrageous, and many low and middle income Californians couldn't afford them. That has gotten a little bit better over the years as more people have signed up, but especially as federal assistance and state assistance have combined to give people subsidies. And so especially in the last two years, we've seen coverage on the covered cow market become more accessible to people. We've seen the premium rate increases uh, not be as drastic. We haven't seen those spikes in rate increases. And so, you know, it just brings into question, well, if the federal assistance goes away and the state isn't able to provide uh, the subsidies, then what what is covered California? Is it even affordable coverage anymore? And so that's that's the big question for me if if things fall through. In fact, Peter Lee said last week when we were talking about this, he called into question the existence of covered California itself. Um, and I think to Sammy's point, yes, it's about affordability. I think that's a major um, component of the Democratic health care agenda next year. It's also about access. California wants to push forward. California has done more than any other state in the country to push forward to universal coverage. This is a giant, giant setback. And beyond the affordability component, it's about access. So rural California is still struggling. Um, Despite the state's gains, there are major problems with people finding um, a, a provider, people getting access to a timely appointment. And so I think what we're seeing is people skipping appointments People are foregoing um, health care you know, procedures or services because they can't afford their premium. So there's a lot California still really wants to work on. And I think that this would be a giant setback. So, Angela, you've covered this and so have you, Sammy. What was at stake in this election for California and by extension with this court case, given how Democratic California is? I assume the Democrats in power were waiting for a Biden win to affirm their aims to expand coverage and services, or at least as much as they can during the pandemic and, of course, into the future. I'll just say that listening to uh, California Attorney General Javier Becerra, he was kind of banking on a Biden win to be able to move forward. Um, he was going to absolutely defend the Affordable Care Act in court no matter what, but he has been very vocal about wanting to build universal health care in California and wanting to make coverage accessible and affordable for everyone. And he has been very blatant about the Trump administration making that rather impossible about the federal barriers that California uh, health, you know, advocates and analysts have had to face. And so, you know, he spoke just a couple of weeks ago 
about kind of hoping for a Biden presidency that could open the doors uh, to what he would like to see happen in terms of universal health care. And so I think Angela is absolutely right. Uh, this this case could sort of pave the way um, if if the ACA is upheld. And then with the new presidency, it, it puts us on a better track, advocates would say, than we were over the last four years. Absolutely. Um, I think that California has counted on a Biden-Harris administration. Um, I think until we saw the final election results um, come out, Democrats were really licking their chops for this really expansive agenda on the horizon. Based on my interviews, California wants to do single payer again. California is talking about a wealth tax to fund coverage expansions. California is talking about adding more subsidies for middle and low income people to buy coverage. California is talking about expanding Medicaid to not only undocumented seniors, but all undocumented immigrants in California. So there is a giant healthcare ambitious agenda um, on the horizon. Um, I think one thing we saw on election night is some of those hopes dim. The election since has been sort of a reality check. Democrats don't control the Senate as they had hoped. And so I think all attention right now is on these um, runoff elections in Georgia. Um, The two Senate seats are up in Georgia, and there's a major fight between this deeply conservative red state and the push among some Democrats to really swing this election blue for the first time in in many years. And I think the California's healthcare agenda in many ways hinges of all things on this Georgia race. I mean, Biden is going to face an uphill battle um, to do things like a a public option if he doesn't have control of the Senate, if Democrats don't have control of the Senate. And then I think you'll see less appetite for Democrats in California to sort of go further and further. California likes to be first. California likes to push the envelope. And I think what we'll see is Democrats' ambitions um, sort of tempered a little bit in California based on what the federal government is going to do. Now, that being said, let me just say um, the single payer proponents, we're talking about the California Nurses Association, for example, of a chief proponent of single payer, they are not letting up. They told me after the election night, this is the perfect opportunity to overhaul the healthcare system. Given the gaps in the state's um, coverage that COVID has exposed, they think, listen, we have finally have a Democratic administration. It's time to it's time to go. It's time to go big. Thank you so much for being with us, Emily Bazar and Angela Hart of Kaiser Health News and Sammy Kaola of Cap Radio for joining us. Thank you. Even a month ago, who would have thought the Georgia Senate races that are now in runoffs could have so much impact on California and the future of health care? Well, Obamacare supporters must be really anxious to get a ruling on this case. Do you know when that might happen, Elizabeth? Well, the Supreme Court has until July of 2021 to make a decision. But from the hearing this week, it looks like a majority of the court, including at least one Trump nominee, seem to lean toward upholding the ACA. In the meantime, open enrollment is coming and Covered California is pulling out all the stops to try to get people to sign up for the ACA. 
Even if the court rules in favor of Obamacare, there are a lot more issues in play, like continuing to expand care and subsidies under a new Biden administration while also facing the challenges of a pandemic budget crunch. It's weird because on the one hand, people are saying that now is the time to protect access to health care. But on the other hand, there's not a lot of money to spend with these economic effects of the pandemic. We'll have to wait until the next session to find out what state legislators and the governor intend to do. I was just going to say, I can't imagine that that's going to be a very pretty battle over the budget in the next two months. Well, we'll be there to help make sense of that. Thank you for joining us this week on California State of Mind. See you next week. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like us. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Chris Bruno and Margarita Noriega are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Dave Lesher is Cal Matters editor, and Joe Barr is Cap Radio's chief of content. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free, and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. 